some remarks before I get uh, started. A couple of years back, uh, David Archer wrote a piece, Why More Philosophers Are Not and Should Not Be More Experts in the Journal of Bioethics. And um, I stumbled upon that, and I thought, no, there's something wrong with his arguments. So I, I uh, responded in the journal. And since then, I received uh, several requests to review papers on more expertise. And I uh, was intrigued by some of the arguments. And I thought, OK, maybe it's an interesting idea to start a project uh, about that, a project on moral expertise uh, and related issues. So I applied for some funding uh, last year and um, um, started this project on moral expertise. Uh, started at Oxford a couple of months. I'm now here at the center. And then uh, later uh, in the year, I will go to uh, Ireland, uh, to Maine Youth University. So what I did, for example, in Oxford was to see more testimony and more expertise. How do these uh, notions relate? Um, I was also working on um, what are moral experts? Uh, do they have to follow their own expert advice in order to remain an expert, for example? And right now, here, uh, um, during that time, I work on two topics. One topic that I will give the presentation on is moral experts versus ethical theories. And the other topic is uh, the notion of moral expertise in Confucianism compared to ancient Greek ethics, namely Aristotle and Plato. Okay, so uh, let's get started with a quote. Uh, matters concerned uh, with conduct and questions of what is good for us have no fixity any more than matters of health. The general account being of this nature, the account of particular cases, is yet more lacking in exactness. For they do not fall under any art or set of precepts, but the agents themselves must in each case consider what is appropriate to the occasion, as happens also in the art of medicine or of navigation. Uh, a quote from Aristotle, uh, Nicomachean Ethics. Three points uh, are, I think, uh, uh, central here. There's no universally applicable rule of conduct, practical matters are context sensitive and indeterminate, and the universal principle cannot capture all important details of a particular case. That is basically uh, a rationale for me uh, with respect to my project. Um, um, what I would like to uh, present today is first to give you some uh, background information of applied ethics. I know um, uh, people are from um, different disciplines here, so that will be our background against which I will introduce uh, briefly some of the main ethical theories. And then I will introduce the concept of more experts and see um, whether we should either go with more experts in order to solve problems or whether people should just use one ethical theory and then apply that, for example. And, and I will also raise two objections uh, with respect to use, using more experts in, in that field. That is my thesis. The complexity of the moral life, the moral universe, is too demanding and challenging that one is able to solve all moral issues by only applying one ethical theory. What is needed are more experts who help solving complex moral issues. So rather, I'm interested in an ethical method that is able to um, 
uh, use different um, important moral aspects than just to apply uh, a rigid ethical theory with one master principle. Um, some brief observations. Uh, the traditional ethical theories attempt to solve moral problems often by using one master principle. That is, we have one dominate, uh, dominating um, um, aspect, for example, the moral duty or the consequences or moral virtues, and thereby they try to uh, uh, do their ethical reasoning and decision making. And one can doubt whether uh, this is really appropriate because um, some of the complexities of a particular case um, are not able to be covered by only uh, one main aspect. It's the same when you go to uh, um, to buy a hat. You know all the problem, one size fits all. That is not really true because if you want to have a nice hat, you make sure that it fits to your hat properly, right? It's the same with ethical theories. There is no one size fits all, basically. It's, uh, morality is more complex than that respect. And uh, new problems cannot be properly solved by the traditional approaches. We have seen that very clearly uh, with respect to the rise of applied ethics in the 20th century. It is not possible to simply apply universal moral principles to complex cases. We have seen that very clearly in, in the rise of applied ethics. So to speak. Um, the third, um, what we also see is that the traditional ethical theories um, they are revised. They have been revised. So we have neo-Kantianism, we have neo-virtue ethics, we have refined versions of utilitarianism in order uh, to deal with the problems, namely that the traditional ethical theories are unable um, to um, provide sound answers in, um, in nowadays, or with respect to nowadays problems. So they revise the theories. And then the idea is, okay, then you revise a theory, it may cause problems with respect to the justification. Um, think about Neo-Kantianism um, and Korsgaard, uh, uh, a Neo-Kantian philosopher in her Sources of Normativity, where she argues um, for uh, more rights for uh, animals, more rights for um, the environment, but based on Kantian reasoning. And then you can think, is her uh, justification or Kantian justification still in line with original theory. And then the consequence may be that uh, we need a pluralistic ethical uh, approach. And here, of course, when we have uh, pluralism, we need to make sure uh, how to choose our um, aspects well. Right? Think about uh, Beecham and Childress uh, um, theory, principalism, uh, they introduced uh, the concept of balancing and uh, the concept of specification in order to deal with this type of pluralistic uh, setting. Right? Just uh, briefly, uh, uh, in order to, to show you um, practical philosophy, we are here, philosophical ethics, and then applied ethics, and this whole field, so to speak, is our playing field, right? And it's very, very complex. There are also more. I will uh, show you in a, in, a, in a second how many um, uh, disciplines we have. And it's simply illusionary to, um, so uh, 
we don't have to go uh, very deeply just to make sure. That at that time, I was working in Tübingen University. I, uh, together with one uh, colleague, we set up this idea that you know, the edges you see the disciplines of applied ethics, and within there are some of the more important uh, problems we face in applied ethics. Here you have, for example, bioethics or business ethics around. The next slide, if you want to uh, work on the problem of abortion, for example, the problem of abortion is quite complex and really touches on various different other disciplines. Right? You see that here. These are the disciplines and subdisciplines. And also, not only the disciplines, but also different uh, issues as well. Property rights, religious conflicts, disability, human dignity, so on and so forth. That shows that's very, 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 very bizarre idea to use one ethical theory with one rigid universal principle and then try to solve issues in abortion, for example. No, it's much more complex and one needs uh, definitely more in order to deal with uh, such type of situations. Just some historical remarks. Uh, applied ethics in that respect has a long philosophical tradition and goes back to antiquity. It is not a new invention, uh, but rather we speak of a revival of applied uh, moral issues. Um, why is that? Uh, usually in the the last couple of hundred years, uh, the questions of justification um, were basically in the focus of um, philosophy. Questions of application, not that much. They have traditionally been treated with, you can call it disrespect, second class, so to speak. Um, people would say, uh, do not get your hands dirty by examining uh, applied ethical issues because it's imprecise, there's empirical um, uh, data involved, and that's not what uh, we philosophers uh, should do, so to speak. That is the old traditional picture. Uh, but then, and that is really a, a big point, um, by virtue of new scientific developments and new problems, think about um, nuclear power, think about decontaminated waste, genetics, cloning of animals, for example, human beings, gene food, global warming, or also artificial intelligence. And now you have a series here as well at the center. Um, these are really hot issues. Um, and therefore, you can see really a revival of uh, applied ethical questions. New problems, as you may uh, um, know or may anticipate demand for new solutions. And this is the idea to basically say goodbye to the traditional uh, ethical theories and uh, to use a more appropriate uh, um, approach. Reasons, we talked a little bit about the technological developments and consequences of applied ethics. We want to improve the living conditions and living standards on the one hand, but that also causes unwanted consequences on the other hand. For example, air or water pollution, you have the clearing of tropical forests, you have intensive livestock farming, but also particular innovations. Right? For example, in genetics, you have strong 
are concerns and deep-seated fears, so to speak, concerning the future of human beings. Enhancement is one uh, notion. Transhumanism is another important topic uh, nowadays in contemporary ethics. Individualism. There we can really see from an authority conscience to an autonomous conscience. The more people, uh, as we witness, become autonomous in moral matters, the greater the boom of applied ethics is. But also gaps in legal systems. That means there's a fear of an ethical vacuum because of the gaps in legal systems. For example, in abortion, in euthanasia, or taking care of elderly. Um, quite often, uh, these issues are not well regulated. Right? So there is a call for um, what to do in certain type of situations. But also public concern regarding concrete uh, problems, more problems that stem from the public concern, so to speak. Think about now what's going on in the mass shootings in schools, right? What should we do? That is an applied ethical issue, right? Um, the consequences call for more orientation to flee the moral vacuum and a general failure of traditional uh, morals. And the goals in applied ethics, and thereby also what the moral expert has to deal with, um, it is practically oriented. It is uh, applied ethics focuses on concrete problems. It's interdisciplinary. That means solving moral problems by adhering to more reasoning and empirical facts. For example, medical ethics, we see the medicine, right? uh, AI, robotics, uh, computer sciences, so on and so forth. Applied ethics has orientation function. It wants to offer ethical orientation by also providing uh, guidance for types of cases, right? not only single cases, but also types of cases. And uh, the clarification function, that basically that means that uh, um, applied ethics makes us aware of new ethical uh, cases, genetics, cloning, human-animal hybrids, uh, are a very hot topic as well, and thereby to promote uh, a kind of awareness of the problem in the first uh, place. The structure function, that means by means of a critical analysis of statements in discussions, uh, applied ethics is able to um, provide a clear structure of arguments. And that is very helpful in, for example, not only academic contexts, but also in public debates. And very important, the revision ability. That means when we claim or say that uh, we acknowledge that there is an ethical progress by taking account basic ethics and the empirical sciences, we have uh, one interesting, well, there are many interesting uh, um, uh, points, but one interesting point was with respect to the status of animals, that you think about what is, um, what is basically uh, the moral uh, notion in order to say that we should protect animals, and there was the idea that maybe it's rationality, uh, when you are um, 
um, not really in, in when, when you're not a utilitarian, for example, and uh, and say that uh, no, it's it's already enough to be a sentient being, and the sentient being um, uh, suffers from pain or is able to suffer from pain, so you shouldn't do that. Thereby, uh, the animal or the animals should be protected. Or you say no. Um, the, the bar is uh, higher, namely, whenever there is a being that is rational, you may want to provide this being with certain moral rights, for example. And this whole idea has, in, has basically also influenced uh, basic ethics. Another point uh, you think about is um, people with mental impairments. Right? Um, that is also an issue that has influenced the discussion in disability studies, but also in medical ethics. So and then the idea when you um, think about uh, um, how to solve these cases in applied ethics. And uh, there has been um, suggestions what to do. First, it should be a, a proper moral reasoning in applied ethics. That means do not use, we will see that on, on later slides, do not use the top-down model of ethical reasoning. In, for example, uh, medical ethics, speech and children use a mid-level, uh, mid-level universal principles. Uh, that means justice, autonomy, beneficence, and non-maleficence in order to solve the cases in um, medical ethics. Right. Um, for example, um, clarification of issues. That means by using complementary theories and individual concepts in order to highlight um, and to structure uh, issues. Of course, you, you may want that people are well-trained. That means uh, they should be knowledgeable about the moral theories, traditions, paradigms that are most uh, are defensible. Um, with respect to casuistical reasoning, uh, ah, no, practical wisdom, there the idea is also how to choose among these theories, traditions, and concepts. And in uh, bar ethics, uh, um, Tomasma and Pellegrino have um, revived the idea of uh, phronesis, uh, the practical wisdom, the notion um, uh, that Aristotle uh, is uh, using. Then casuistical reasoning, you have here paradigm cases and analogical reasoning that is of utmost importance if you want to solve some complex cases. Here the brief overview, I will just briefly um, go through uh, the theories, but uh, uh, really only briefly. Uh, we have here the top-down approaches. I will uh, see on the slide uh, deontology and Kant. Consequentialism, that means utilitarianism. Um, then mid-level principles, that is prism by Bichemin Childress. And then more case-oriented, so-called bottom-up approaches. Right. What that is, I will uh, explain on the, on the next uh, slides. And they are basically, when you deontology, consequentialism, and virtue ethics, they are the main ethical theories. Okay. Deontology, uh, as you know, act, the categorical imperative, uh, Kant's um, 
act only on that maxim through which you can at the same time will, that it should become a universal law. That means in more detail to act from duty or to act because one thinks that is morally right is to perform an action because one thinks that this maxim has the form of a law. And the categorical imperative is a test for maxims. It is not a test for actions. Only when the maxims are universalizable, then you apply the maxims to the actions. And we uh, um, see clearly in applied ethics that uh, using a Kantian approach is uh, um, problematic for a couple of reasons. I just want to highlight three. Uh, one point we see with respect to truth-telling in the context of medical ethics, that this is a big issue. Um, of course, when you are a patient, um, maybe um, it is good uh, that you also know what's going on with you, but in some certain cases, that is a problem and it will cause you a more pain than less, and that's why many doctors nowadays as well rather try to uh, hide the truth um, from the patient in particular cases. So the idea then to say you always have to tell the truth can be detrimental to the patient's health. Or personhood, rationality, in the context of disability studies and the moral status of people with mental impairment, if you use a Kantian approach, that's also a very different, different and difficult uh, setting. The last example, uh, suicide, uh, for example. Uh, uh, euthanasia in that respect, also very, very complex. And uh, when you are on a Kantian footing, so to speak, you, you, you may um, encounter uh, problems in that, uh, that respect. Utilitarianism, um, the greatest happiness principle holds that actions are right in proportion as they tend to promote happiness, wrong as they tend to produce the reverse of happiness, but happiness is intended pleasure, um, and the absence of pain by unhappiness, pain, and deprivation of pleasure. From Mill's uh, utilitarianism, of course, there are many different versions of utilitarianism, but I, of course, don't go for each and every version, but I want to highlight four main points that utilitarian theories have in common. The first is the consequence principle. That means it is not about the actions, but about the consequences of actions. So the moral worth of a particular action is determined by its outcome. The second uh, is happiness. So um, happiness can be defined by different means. It can be the promotion of pleasure, the avoidance of pain, but can also be the fulfillment of desires or considered preferences, or it can also be um, meeting some objective criteria of well-being. Um, the third point is the uh, greatest happiness principle itself, namely it is about the greatest happiness of, or for the greatest number. That is the third point. And the fourth point is maximizing. It is about to maximize the collective amount of utility with respect to sentient beings affected by that very action. Um, but as you know, utilitarianism uh, comes also with uh, uh, some disadvantages. 
Um, for example, minority rights, that is an issue. Think about uh, the famous number debate and the so-called trolley case in, in ethics. And in general, um, with respect for justice, there are also some issues that um, um, one can point out. Uh, principism, feature with children, mid-level mid, mid principles. Um, they know these four principles. They have more rules, and they have more virtues. And that together is the common morality. And they try to use the common morality in addition or together with particular moralities. Particular moralities is, uh, or are made up of the culture, religion, or traditions of a particular group or country or nation, or etc. And together, that means with the common morality and the particular moralities, they try to solve uh, complex cases um, in uh, bioethics. Um, the common morality is the starting point of the constraining framework uh, in order to make these uh, um, ethical decisions. Um, they are not absolute universal principles, but uh, prima facie uh, principles. Though they claim, at least for a long time, that uh, the principle of autonomy is um, first among uh, the uh, universal principles. And in particular, and that is a point that is um, also a critical point, they think that autonomy should be further specified as individual informed autonomy. And uh, that is, of course, difficult when you want to apply this type of reasoning in non-Western settings, where autonomy can be a family-informed consent. It can be um, a group consent, for example. That is basically involved in the problems when you use autonomy in a limited sense. So to speak. So the idea is: is, princip is principism really universalistic, or are there any other problems involved? Then, um, virtue ethics. Um, you may know this uh, famous uh, um, locus. Aristotle claims that when these three points are given, then we have the virtuous right action. Namely, the first is the agent must have knowledge of the circumstances of the action. So the action should not happen by chance. Um, you have to know, so to speak, the circumstances. Then second, the action is undertaken out of deliberative choice and is done for its own sake. Third, the action is performed without hesitation. That is, the action is performed by a person with a firm and stable virtuous character. So that means if you do, according to the theory, if you do not have a stable virtuous character, uh, then there is no really true virtuous action. Um, of course, um, virtue ethics encounters also problems. 
it's a very demanding uh, ethical approach, then the idea whether ritual ethics is by nature egoistic or whether it is not egoistic because it is about um, living a good life, uh, uh, to become a happy person, eudaimonia is, uh, uh, must be mentioned in that respect. So what is the moral character, or how does the moral character relate to uh, the right actions? What is the kalon for which you basically do the action? All these uh, things are, are, are to be mentioned here as well. And the last uh, theory, um, also bottom-up approach, which is basically based also on uh, virtue ethical reasoning. We have casuistry, Tulman and Johnson, the views of casuistry, I think 1990, um, is there a book published, case-oriented. So the circumstances make the case, that is their, their slogan. It is context-sensitive. Uh, the theory must really appreciate also the circumstances. You compare cases in order to find out what is the morally right action. And you have these paradigmatic cases um, that are basically evident. They are right. And they use these paradigmatic cases in order to see whether there are some uh, similar features in the new case, and then they say, okay, this feature is important, and we already know that this is that, so therefore we can use this uh, type of argument. And moral intuitionism, um, I think that is uh, uh, clear that you have strong moral intuitions in some certain cases, and uh, then people think, okay, because it's so strong, that must be right. And that is, of course, also uh, a very difficult uh, position to entertain. So you have here, for example, the problem of relativity. Um, a moral intuition in the West may be not the same than in non-Western contexts, um, depending on different cases. But also, people would say, uh, we have a kind of tyranny of paradigmatic cases. Right? If you have once in place paradigmatic cases, um, they are basically like lighthouses. Right? You always uh, go back to these cases and it can easily be the case, well, not, not really easily, but it can be the case that these paradigmatic cases um, may not be that self-evident. Right? So that is also uh, a problem in that context. So the top-down model of reasoning, that was the idea, and we have here the Kantianism and utilitarianism. That is really the, the idea that you have a particular moral theory, and the particular moral theory justifies the moral principle, and then the moral principle in turn justifies the moral rules, and the moral rules justify the moral judgment. And at some point, you have also the empirical data that comes in. That means the cognancy and the plausibility of the moral judgment rests on the proper justification of the particular moral theory. Right? So if you think that your moral theory is well-founded, um, then people think, OK, we can just go ahead with this moral theory, and we will solve 
each and every problem just by using our mode theory and applying our principles so on and so forth. That is the traditional idea. Okay. The bottom-up model is different. We have here, there also I will mention that uh, in, in, a, in a second what, why there is a difference. We have here the moral judgment or the moral case. Um, people say, uh, we call this morphology. That means capturing the basic uh, structure and basic problems of a given case. Taxonomy means you classify or the classification of a given case with respect to an order of similar cases. And kinetics means the evaluation of particular circumstances of a given case. And there are casuists that say it's not possible if we make our decisions here to um, generalize this reasoning and then to have something like moral rules. Or from there to say, um, we are able to come up with moral principles based on our casuistical reasoning. There are uh, philosophers that think, no, we are particularists. There is no, there are no universals. There are no universal principles, right? But there are also uh, casuists that say, no, it, might, it may be possible that we can come up with uh, universal moral rules, uh, also in the context of casuistry. Um, so here we have basically um, uh, particularism, and here we have universalism. And virtue ethics, which is interesting, uh, uh, when you when you read McIntyre, um, um, for example, he would say, no, I mean, virtue ethics, that is uh, something that depends on uh, the community, right? There is no universal application. But if you read the Nussbaum, for example, she would entertain the idea that no virtue ethics that is universal by nature, so to speak. Okay. Um, some working assumptions with respect to uh, more experts. Um, more expertise and more experts exist. I do not argue in particular for that. Um, some moral philosophers are moral experts who possess moral expertise. That means uh, it can, or it is definitely the case that not all moral philosophers are moral experts. And here I divert from my paper at uh, uh, on the Journal of Bioethics in 2014. Um, then some lay people may also have moral expertise, but uh, that is uh, very limited, I, I would say. Um, the fourth, moral experts must have cognitive, but not necessarily practical skills. Um, depending on what your basis is, if, if, you, if you rely or adhere to Confucianism, then that would be not the case, because um, you also have to have practical skills. The same with Aristotle, you have to have practical skills. It's not only about um, that you know what the morally right decision is. No, you do it. That's the difference between the phronimos on the one hand, the, the practical wise person, and the clever person on the other hand. So that is the villain 
right? Uh, the smart villain. So there are like uh, the moral expertise on the left and the moral experts on the right. There are three possible uh, options. You can either say that yes, there is moral expertise, and yes, there are moral experts. For example, Peter Singer is advertising that view, or McConnell, Kaplan, um, um, myself. Then people say no, there is moral expertise, but um, there are no more experts. For example, David Archer, he, he claims that that is only in a very, very, very limited uh, uh, case, the case. Or there is no moral expertise, and there are moral experts that is logically impossible, obviously. And then to say that, no, there is no moral expertise, and also there are no moral experts. For example, Bernard Williams is advertising that view. Ayer is advertising that view, so on and so forth. What is now a moral expert? I would like to present two uh, voices, namely Singer and McConnell. And um, Singer says, yes, a moral expert that is first and foremost a moral philosopher versus a layperson. Second, a moral expert is uh, well, his general training as a philosopher uh, comes very handy, namely he is competent in argument and he is able to detect invalid inferences. The third specific experience in moral philosophy, uh, that means he understands moral concepts and also he understands the logic of moral argument. And a moral expert has time to think means if you have time to think for, let's say, 20, 30, 40 years on some certain topics, um, you would usually assume that this person knows a little bit more than, let's say, the, the person on the street. Right. Uh, if that would be not the case, then uh, why doing more philosophy? Um, McConnell has a more uh, a substantial list of nine items. He also claims that uh, a moral expert is a moral philosopher, and here particular, uh, it is the normative ethicist. It is not the meta-ethicist, it is not the descriptive ethicist, it is the normative ethicist, according to McConnell. Second, uh, the ability to enable others to understand what they have good moral reasons to do. Uh, the third, the ability to, to distinguish good and bad arguments. And here, that is meant to arrive at moral knowledge. Very important in that respect, he claims. Fourth, ability to recognize fallacious uh, reasoning. That means that makes one less apt to be led astray by emotional appeals and other, uh, he says, irrelevant uh, considerations. Fifth, um, he's better in understanding moral concepts and that is, according to him, necessary in order to achieve moral knowledge. And one is less likely to be confused in discussing complex moral problems uh, as well. The sixth point is the ability to certain relevant similarities and differences concerning analogies and uh, comparisons. 
seven, the ability to identify novel alternatives with respect to complex problems. That is, according to him, helpful in attaining also moral knowledge. You have time to think again. And nine, not infallible. Yes, moral experts are not infallible. That is, I think, a very, very uh, important point um, uh, as well that we should not um, forget. Even though we can claim that more experts most likely will get it right almost every time, but they are still not infallible. So how can we basically think of all this? We can say, okay, a more expert has uh, a foundation to rely on. He knows his ethical theories. He knows the principles and rules. He knows and has the common body of knowledge, and he's equipped with all types of methods, analogies, pragmatic cases, so on and so forth. And with respect um, to his education, more experience, he has a specialized education that helps him to understand things, he has particular knowledge. And here, that's why there is a, a, a question mark. Um, some would say, uh, uh, such as Bela Sabados, no, the moral expert should not only have cognitive skills, but also should have a moral character. Right? That is very important for um, uh, the decision-making process. The right motive um, uh, is important. Uh, moral emotions, um, according to some people, are important. And that is, uh, of course, um, going back to either a Kantian reasoning with the motive or even an Aristotelian reasoning with the motive, but not obviously with a, with a utilitarian setting. Um, then what about the case, you know, you have to think about all the different uh, um, particular circumstances. You need to know the empirical facts. The consequences are important as well. And there is, as you may know, discussion in, with respect to uh, Kantian ethics, whether he's really that strict in order not to allow uh, consequences or whether it's a mix. So it's a debate in, in, in ethics that is um, um, there as well. But also, what is important, um, particular features. Right? The tradition, the culture, the religion may come up as um, a problem as well. Think about uh, uh, genital uh, circumcision for males and females. Right? In some certain context, that is uh, a huge uh, uh, problem. So the moral expert really has to deal with all these different points on the list and even more. Right? And depending on whether you say, no, that is already too much, just let's stick to one simple ethical theory top-down model, uh, that will do. No, it won't. Morality is complex, and um, therefore we need people who are really um, able to uh, oversee that and apply that. So two uh, objections. We have one objection of arbitrariness, and the second objection of paternalism uh, against this um, view. The first. There is a methodological uncertainty, as um, you can say, or people may come up with this uh, objection. 
First, the criteria for remote expertise are somewhat unclear and therefore may become arbitrary. If the criteria become arbitrary, it is unlikely that moral decisions will be correct or always correct. So therefore, one should not adhere to moral experts. The counter-argument can look like this. It's a combination of, of, um, of responses. Namely, there are no simple solutions in complex moral cases. Substantial experience in solving moral problems is needed. You need a proper moral education, knowledge, professional training. And then the question is whether um, we, we are really, whether we really think that uh, there is only one standard of correctness. Is, there, is it only the right motive? Is it only the consequences? Is it only the morally good character that determines whether an action is right or wrong? Or is it rather a combination of different aspects? And then you can say, OK, if it is a combination of different aspects, what method can you use in order to determine what aspect is important in this and that situation? And then the idea is uh, adhere to a well-educated and highly experienced moral expert. The second objection, moral experts undermine moral autonomy. Decisions have only moral worth when individuals always think things through on their own. Paternalism undermines one's own moral autonomy. Therefore, one should never rely on moral expertise in deciding what to do. This is not only an argument with respect to ethics, but it has also um, validity in political uh, philosophy as well. Um, the counter-argument would be uh, no one really claims that all moral decisions should be done by moral experts. I think that would be uh, like to crack enough the slasher. I mean, that is not necessary that all moral problems have to be solved by a moral expert. On the contrary, autonomy demands that one's moral decisions are as well informed as possible in order to ensure proper moral reasoning. Think about uh, medical ethics. We have something like the individual informed consent. That means the physician will provide you with all necessary information with respect to your case so that you can make an informed decision. If you don't want that, then your decision is not informed enough and you may end up with a wrong uh, decision, morally speaking. Third, more experts should be seen as people who, who enhance the decision-making process in more affairs that is true or goes for the individual, but also for society at large. Um, you all know the existence of ethics boards, not only at hospitals, but also in politics and so forth, in order to discuss and enhance the position, uh, the, the, pro, the process of decision making. And receiving moral advice is not undermining one's moral autonomy, but on the contrary, enhancing it to the maximum. And uh, here, the conclusions, complex moral cases cannot be solved by a simple application of traditional ethical approaches. A flexible 
ethical method is the proper way to deal with numerous more aspects of a given case. And uh, remote experts, uh, as I have argued, are our best um, way to solve these complex moral issues. And we have seen that in the context of applied ethics, very, com very complex issues, and the idea to come just with one theory and to solve all problems that is uh, illusionary. Um, of course, that was now work in progress. That is not a finished paper whatsoever. Um, but uh, I think uh, I made my point clear. I'm very much looking forward to the debate. And I thank you for your patience. Thank you.